Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Welcome to ACME Studio One uh, for this Hollywood Costume Sunday talk. Um, First, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are meeting and enjoying this event today. Um, I'd like to pay respects to their elders past and present and their elders from any other communities that might be here today. Um, So today's session is titled Dust, Leather and Masculinity, Dressing Men on Film. Our expert panel will dissect how masculinity is defined on the silver screen, how a strong male character is defined through the clothes that they wear, and how does fabric colour our understanding of character? So, a couple of housekeeping things. If you need to leave during the session... Just come round to the side here where I'm pointing. We've got a back entrance. You can see that when you try and go out that one, the big wind tunnel comes and that curtain takes you away. So if anyone needs to leave it all, just through the side here. We'll be recording the event. So if people could put their phones onto silent or airplane mode or whichever one buzzes. Um, I'm, just before we kick off, I'm just going to introduce our host for today who will give you some more information about our guest speakers. So Paola de Trocchio is Curator of Fashion and Textiles at the National Gallery of Victoria. As a curator, she sees the garments in her collections as characters in an overall story or exhibition concept. Paola will provide an overview of the evolving character of two masculine forms, the suit and the leather jacket, and she will explore how these two evolving forms have changed and been informed by characters that have played them in select films. Just before I say please welcome Paola, I just wanted to make a quick note that we'll be showing, the the speakers that are on today will be showing some clips. We do have a clip later on that's a little bit in the adult, but we'll give it a context beforehand, so just a warning about that clip. It's actually a comedy, but it'll make sense when we get to it. Um, So please welcome Paola. Thank you, and thank you for coming um, and expressing interest in masculinity and costume. So I think the reason that I'm here is because I was part of the team um, at the NJV in 2011 who curated an exhibition called Man Style. And unlike Hollywood costume, which hopefully you've all seen downstairs, the exhibitions that we do um, don't really have characters. They don't ha- we, we often don't know who actually wore the garments. Um, even if we do, they're often not really people of note. They're, you know, blah, blah, blah's uncle or someone's auntie. So, oh, in, mas- in um, Man Style, it wasn't someone's auntie, but it, you know, <laughs> generally that's how the collection goes. Um, so we rely on the, ca- on, on, on the garments themselves to sort of embody character or to be the characters um, in the exhibition. And a couple of years ago, I wrote an article um, called When Objects Talk, because really what we do in exhibitions is we put objects or garments together and through the 
combination of those particular um, articles of clothing, we create a story or, you know, the idea of the exhibition. So in man style, um, there were two overriding themes and we weren't, for all sorts of reasons, we weren't able to present a chronology of men's history. Um, So we divided it into two dominant themes, um, the dandy and the peacock. Oh, here's my clicker. Um, so, sorry, this is the, you know, um, jacket without the body in it. Um, this is our dandy and our peacock. So, very clearly through the examples of the clothing, you see, you know, what we're talking about when we're talking about peacock, someone quite ostentatious, um, you know, lots lots of um, decoration happening, and that occurs in the punk jacket. Um, and the dandy we saw embodied um, by the suit. So in the peacock section, um, as I mentioned, we looked at the punk, but we looked at other sorts of um, symbols that are put on men's clothes. And we, t- we thought about how particular types of clothing communicate different um, types of uh, masculinities. Um, this was the sort of rebels and rule breakers section. We also had um, another section... Well, we had a whole exhibition space looking at the peacock and one of the other themes was looking at the decorated 18th century male frock coat and the different reasons and ways that men in particular uh, wear decoration and the different meanings that they can have. And for the rebels and rule breakers, the leather jacket was, you know, a symbol of rebellion. Uh, In this particular section, it was about looking at the 18th century frock coat as... Uh, decoration signifying wealth and power and prestige. We also tied those examples through with other sorts of costumes in order to reference what I was talking about before, that idea of putting particular characters together to communicate a particular story or theme. The second theme, or the second section of the exhibition rather, was looking at the dandy. And we saw the dandy as characterised particularly by the suit or, you know, one and the other. They come to represent each other and there's um, historical reasons for that. And actually it's interesting to think of the term dandy because I think in a contemporary context its meaning has changed somewhat in that it can be misinterpreted as being a figure who is ostentatious, but actually the term dandy in the 19th century um, referred to a figure who dressed with restraint. It was about utmost restraint. It was about perfection, um, being very, very subtle, not calling attention to overt statements of sort of, um, you know, ostentation, but actually pulling it back in order to be the ultimate elegant gentleman. So who better than to um, personify the dandy or, you know, the man in the suit than James Bond? The two have been um, pretty inseparable, I think, in the 20th century. And he's a character that personifies um, different aspects of the suit. Um, And I've thought about that in sort of a number of sections thinking about it in terms of um, English tailoring and the history of English tailoring and how he reiterates that and um, both refers to history but also progresses it, Um, thinking about the idea of the action man slash gentleman, what happens when you put an action man in a suit, Uh, and also as representing the suit uh, as a template of modernity and urbanity. 
So these are just a couple of ideas that I'll run through uh, quickly. So in terms of the history of tailoring, it is a very clearly sort of English domain. Um, it's in 1666 that Charles II pronounces the suit as the attire that men will wear. So he's a king, he gets to tell everybody what to wear. Um, it's the three-piece suit in particular that he puts forward as a template of um, sobriety and uh, sort of, of, of basically sobriety, you know, seriousness, um, something important that we should all wear. Over time, it does become um, quite decorated. The French um, continue to wear it and, you know, as, as um, rulers, you know, other countries follow suit. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so anyway, through the 18th century, we've got very decorated suiting. Um, in the 19th century, a figure called Beau Brummel emerges um, in about the 1820s. He is the figure that uh, really becomes first associated with the term the dandy. He's obsessed with cut, with cloth, with fit, with all the details of the suit, and he moves around to different um, tailors in order to perfect that. And we also get the emergence of Savile Row and the importance of Savile Row. And Savile Row is a small street um, in London where the top tailors in the world um, work from. And all of that has to do with all those things that Beau Brummel introduced, like perfection of cut, fit. It's, it's the absolute attention to detail in bespoke tailoring. And so... He, he changes the form of tailoring. It, it sort of, you know, lifts a level. And the Savile Row clients are basically the, you know, English um, politicians, lawyers, you know, the, the men who rule the Western world. So they're an important list of powerful men. So the suit um, embodies this as well. The suit also becomes, uh, sort of merges with the idea of urbanity, um, particularly in the late 19th century, moving into the 20th century, when, you know, men of professions start to wear suits. So you've got this sort of very important suit happening, and then it sort of starts to, 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 to fall a bit. You know, at the end of the Second World War, British, Britain's having a bit of an identity crisis, America's rising in power, they're losing their sartorial uh, prominence, casual wear is rising. And what do they do? They, you know, they, they get a bit scared, but you know, James Bond emerges as this sort of urban gentleman, action man, man who is, you know, smart. It's not about his physicality, it's about his brain and it's about the way he, he, he works um, people but, and, you know, particular situations to, you know, rise above. So he invests the suit again with this, these sort of gentlemanly traits um, and with the, 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 the figure of, of the action man, the gentleman, the 19th century gentleman, but transformed to a 20th century setting. You know, he's a womaniser, so he's very attractive to, I'm assuming, other straight men, you know, as a sort of figure and a role model. Um, and he also, you know, he always wins, so we like that. Um, and he wears the suit um, and he wears it well and he's, he's very stylish. He's the opposite, you know, of other sorts of action men. He doesn't rely on his brawn and his, you know, muscles. He's not the, the unknowing, um, you know, Bruce Willis who, who's sort of the action man caught unawares. He, he doesn't know he's going to have to save the world. Um, so, you know, he just happens to be wearing his singlet underneath and he relies on his sort of, you know, over-the-top masculinity. Um, 
likewise, the Terminator is, you know, a different sort of figure um, who is much more sort of bulky and physical, um, whereas, you know, James Bond is active and agile in his well-cut suit. Um, it also sort of masks his, um, his, his weaponry um, so he can move about urban um, scenarios with ease. Uh, you know, he's welcome everywhere in a suit. Um, these are some of the suits that preceded, um, just sort of leading up the sort of bulkier 1940 silhouette, um, moving into the 60s sort of slimline space age silhouette made out of jersey fabric that Pierre Cardin's starting to do in the 1960s. Um, but still, that sort of slim suit is the one that is most um, associated with James Bond. Um, other tailors in the 19 late 1960s, 70s in um, Savile Row. It's sort of the fashion side of, you know, what happens because of James Bond. You get the re-emergence of these um, Savile Row tailors and one of which is Tommy Nutter who goes on to dress sort of celebrities like um, Mick Jagger. Um, the other thing that James Bond does is wear um, the dinner suit and that is something that also can be credited to Beau Brommel. Uh, in the late... No, sorry, in the... Um, Mid-19th century, earlier 19th century, the combination of black and white was something that was associated with lawyers um, and, again, with the professions. But Beau Brummel actually makes that combination, you know, the white shirt um, or even the white dinner jacket um, and black pants actually quite fashionable as dinner attire. So, again, it's the 19th century figure informing the 20th century figure and it's the 20th century figure of James Bond that, you know, popular culture is most aware of. You know, the average person wouldn't know who Beau Brummel is, um, but the average person does know who James Bond is. So it's a lot of these characteristics of the 19th century gentleman being picked up um, in a popular form in the spy film um, by a character like James Bond, who it's, you know, pretty easy to be pretty won over by. Um, you know, he's kind of got it all. Um, the other character that I'll be talking about briefly is the leather jacket. Um, so we all know um, the leather jacket well. And we, you know, very easily come to associate the leather jacket as a symbol and a signifier of rebellion. And I think a lot of that comes down to its characterisation, particularly in the 1950s, um, you know, these two film stills that I've included here I don't think would be unfamiliar to anybody. Um, James Dean, Rebel Without a Cause, although he's not wearing a leather jacket in that particular um, frame, his friend is. Um, and we've also got, you know, the wild one. So just the titles of the films themselves suggest um, the idea of rebellion. But the example that I thought... Oh, here's another one. Um, LAUGHTER Kinnicky and, and Danny. And the other interesting thing that I thought about this clip, which I hadn't really noticed, um, you know, in all the thousands of times that I have watched Grease, is that it is the two sort of, you know, leaders of the pack who wear the denim jacket. The other two, I uh, can't remember their names right now, you know, they're always actually wearing cloth jackets. So, again, it's that sort of visual signifier of, you know, leader of the pack. And, you know, in the film itself, um, you know, Danny and Kinnicky are sort of on par as leaders of the pack, whereas, you know, you think about the feminine counterpart, which is the pink ladies, and, you know, Rizzo is very clearly the leader. But, you know, in this particular scenario, they both 
sort of wear the leather jacket. They're both sort of sharing that role. And then, of course, interestingly, at the end of the film, um, you know, the leather jacket becomes actually quite important in the characterisation of, you know, Danny leaving the T-Birds to, you know, pursue Sandy, who's, you know, not tough. Um, And then, you know, swapping it around, Sandy wears the leather jacket to show that she's part of, or, you know, she wants to be like him. So it's, 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 it's a very strong symbol through the film of you know what side you're on and I guess that's another 1950s theme as well you know things like West Side Story this sort of gang um, situation but the example that I was going to pull out or that I'll just talk about briefly here is um, the Steve McQueen character in The Great Escape and I've only only, uh, just recently watched this film but I found it interesting because the film itself is about you know a group of Um, allied officers in German war camps planning this great escape. So they're all officers, but it is this one character who wears um, a leather jacket. And we don't know him yet. We're at the very beginning of the... He doesn't wear it in in his, you know, big moment, but he wears it at the beginning of the film when they're developing the character of, you know, who this guy is. One by one, we're sort of introduced by each of the characters and he's the only one in the leather jacket. So that immediately marks him as a bit different. And later on we find out that he is a bit different. You know, he plans his own escapes. He spends a lot of time in solitary confinement. He becomes key to their plan of the great escape, but he only joins in when he feels like it. You know, he's that sort of independent thinker, the, you know, bit of a wild card, we'll see what he does. Um, But immediately, you know, the first time that we see him, he's wearing a leather jacket. Um, Hang on, I'll come back to that. (laughs) So... Yeah, so so we've got this this idea of you know the the rebel wearing the leather jacket, and it again um, you know thinking about these ideas, and you know having seen the exhibition, I thought about you know why does this happen? Okay, fine, you know leather's sort of tough and blah blah blah, um, but it's you know it's also at this moment in the nineteen fifties that the theme of the western is um, at its prime. Uh, I mean, it, it's been happening for a little while, but, you know, John Wayne in The Searchers is considered to be one of, you know, the great westerns of the entire genre. Um, and this comes out in the 50s. So you've got a whole bunch of teenagers watching these westerns, seeing the idea of, you know, the man in the wilderness wearing leather, um, triumphing, um, you know, good against evil, white man, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, you know, man on a mission, man out you know, um, pursuing his, his, his cause. It's referencing, you know, early dress, the idea of um, leather as protective, you know, protective wear. Um, eventually leather is sort of worked um, to become armour and actually resist arrows. Um, so you, you, you sort of have this more, uh, this earlier association with leather on film screens while teenagers are then adopting leather themselves um, in a very different form. And I think one of the other influences of that sort of bomber 50s leather jacket uh, is the aviation um, attire that's worn, you know, through the beginning of the 20th century um, and into, you know, the Second World War. So it's sort of a combination of those associations, I think, that feeds into that idea of um, the rebellion or the rebel um, in the leather jacket. 
It's also the qualities of the fabric itself. Um, it offers protection while it's actually soft and agile, um, but at the same time it has slightly reflective qualities, so it adds a certain amount of glamour, um, even in, in its kind of rough, beat-up sort of feel. Um, and the bomber jacket itself, you know, zipping it up, um, you know, it's contained to the upper part of the torso and it sort of bulks up the chest um, without, uh, you know, any sort of padding or anything like that just because of the quality of the material, the way that leather behaves around the body and the particular cut of that bomber-style jacket. So, again, that's a very sort of masculine motif, that sort of built upper body. So I think all these things feed into why it is that the leather jacket and the sort of leather bomber jacket in particular has these associations with the rebel it has the associations of the characters who have played them um, but also the history that's come before it and also the qualities of the actual um, piece itself cool so that's just my little summary of um, the two particular features and to follow me will be Anna Borghese, who is a celebrated Australian costume and design producer. Um, Anna has designed costumes for some of Australia's most memorable films and television series of the last 20 years, including Romper Stomper, Head On, Ned Kelly and Mayo's Last Dancer. Anna will be talking us through her distinguished career in costume design and clothes she designed for the complex men in her films, characters and stars. Might be interesting to see what, um, I, I don't know, if she thinks I got it right. I'm not sure. It's actually, it's actually kind of interesting presenting um, when there's a costume designer in the audience, but there might be more than one. Um, but we're, we're going to have a little bit of a Q&A um, at the end, so uh, please save your thoughts for then. Um, but for the moment, if you could make Anna welcome. Thank you. I don't think any of those things are true about me. I think most of the stuff about the suits and the leather is true. Now, I've come today as a dandy peacock. Um, my Conti cardigan from the 70s, which is the peacock, peacock kind of aspect of it, but again, very popular amongst the Melbourne subculture, skinhead subculture, and my man pants. I'm just going to leave the rest on. If I get hot, I'll take this off. <laughs> But it's interesting, I, I, I think it's really fantastic the way we've, it, frock coat, frocks, women wear frocks, men wore frock coats. Um, I've got some pictures and some costume drawings and stuff like that that I'm going to, if we have the house lights on, you can pass those around and look at those and then that means that you're not listening to me as much. And then it doesn't really matter. I've got Brian Craig, I've stayed up watching the exhibit for the last couple of weeks. So um, if I drop in and out of consciousness, that's why. I'm incredibly tired and Collingwood got beaten by the Gold Coast. So, uh, yeah. So there's some photographs from Romper Stomper and some costume drawings from Ned Kelly. So why don't I start with these ones around here. And, you know, just have a look, pass them around. Um, uh, what Paola was saying is really interesting. And uh, it's interesting for me because I think it's so great that people can take something apart like that when sometimes the decision is as simple as... Oh, you look quite good in that. No, I think you should wear that. <laughs> and, and sometimes when you're dealing with men, and no offence, but they really just don't care that much. 
women are, are, in my experience, working with um, actors and actresses, and I'm only using that to kind of, you know, so that we're clear about who we're talking about, um, men tend to be more concerned about how tall they look <laughs> and um, whether it's comfortable. And women are more concerned about how good they look. And my catchphrase, I think, with all of them is, listen, the, the bottom line for me as a costume designer is, if you look good, I look good. If you look bad, I won't work again. So let's work together and make sure that we both work again. So it's really, it's, it's interesting to be in a situation listening to Paola thinking that there is all that analysis post-product, whereas the starting point for me on a film is, say, something like Romper Stomper, which was my first film, was really working with the director and saying, what do we want the costumes to say to the audience? without the audience ever thinking that we're telling them something. Because that is the art of a great costume. A great costume is a costume that's just there. It's invisible, but it's visible because at some point it's penetrated the brain and it's giving you information about a character without having to speak. So it is, it is in a way, its own character, but without having the actor in it, it's a, it's a garment. Um, Romper Stomper was a really interesting exercise because working with someone like Russell Crowe, who even at that age, um, was very clear in his ideas about who this character was, um, what his intentions were, where he came from. Um, I, the Conti I'm wearing at the moment is... I presented Russell with a Conti, not this one, because I was trying to be a little bit ironic and interesting in my costume design. And I said, oh, you know, in the 70s, um, skinheads in Melbourne wore contis and they, they went to certain factories and they had them designed. And, that. and he basically just said, it's gay. <laughs> he said, I'm not wearing it, it's really gay. And I went, but Russell, you miss it. He said, I'm not wearing it. I was like, okay, fine. So it, it's this constant negotiation, but he'd drawn a very clear line in the sand about where, what he was prepared to commit to in terms of costume to get his character across the line. Um, he invested very heavily in the coat that he wore. There was a blue coat, which was an army coat. And if I had one of those for every phone call I got from people saying, where did you get Russell's coat from? Because I really want one. Um, because that's what people do. They then they, they latch on to a garment or a piece of costume and they want to have it in their lives because they think that will actually somehow make their lives... You know, it will, it will follow that trajectory. Um, again, which is something that I find quite fascinating. But that coat got trashed at the end in the beach scene. The other decision that we made on that film, much to Les Twentyman's horror, was to put Russell in a Footscray Bulldogs T-shirt right at the end. But there was no intention to reference Footscray. It was a decision made because it was informed by a character choice to, for Hando to have found something that represented the empire. So it was the British bulldog, not the Footscray bulldog. And it was, in his mind, the best thing that he could get um, to wear that made him Australian, but also something that clung to the empire and that connected him. And it was very widely debated. And I quite innocently did it without having any idea of what the repercussions of what that, what that would be. And, and it became a very yeah, widely debated that, you know, should he have worn that T-shirt? Shouldn't he have worn that T-shirt? What's it saying about the people at Footscray? What's it saying about Footscray football? Football club. It's like, actually, it's not saying any of those things. <laughs> so, again, there was a moment of interpretation which was not what the intention of the choice of the costume was. 
But um, interestingly, that film and the photographs, the folder that's being passed around, I mean, it was a, a film dominated by male characters. And there were the Anglo characters and then the Asian Vietnamese characters. And they were quite marked in their difference visually and also through language and action. And it was quite heightened. One of the interesting things about working with a group, in term, especially a male group, so whether it's a football team or an army team or a group of skinheads, is that within you, you need to be able to come up with a uniform that can then be personalised. And so that was a big part of the challenge with each, with each of these actors, was to find the truth of the actor and then somehow imbue their costume with an aspect of that. So I, Jeffrey's direction was... Um, make them comfortable in their skins in these roles because he'd followed a group of skinheads around Melbourne and then I'd done some work with some of those skinheads and then we took that information to the actors and then the actors brought their ideas, most of them very strong ideas about who their characters were and where they wanted their characters to sit visually and then we came up with a plan and we came up, and interesting, there are a couple of them who said, no, I want, the, I want this jacket. And so a few of them wanted the same garments. But again, for the sake of visual storytelling, we then had to pretty much draw straws about who would get certain items because it was a quite limited palette. You know, the rules were jeans with cuffs, Ben Sherman shirts with buttons on the... The Ben Sherman shirt was adopted by skinheads because it's got a button on the back of the collar. So it's much harder in a fight to grab the collar from behind because the collar's buttoned down. So there were lots of rules about the kind of clothing that you would wear and, and also the colours. I mean, the white braces, they were a given. And some of those things, in a way, especially all the white, is counterintuitive to that very aggressive masculine style. But again, it's the performance within that that brings the masculinity to, masculinity to the surface. Um, some of the so Daniel Wiley's character was more of a light-hearted, you know, if you can have a light-hearted skinhead. He was kind of like the, a bit more of the Joker of the gang. And again, those things were all reflected in the costume choices. Um, and then again, on the other side, the same with the Vietnamese group. It was again the idea of within the organised gang of Vietnamese, it was important to allow them each to have an individual voice, but to not. Um, Work with that. Work outside of that framework. So again, we, I did a lot of research in the air, in around Richmond and specific areas where Jeffrey had referenced, and then took that information, went to the actors with it, workshopped it with the actors, and came up with a palette and a, a group of costumes that we could work from. Colour was another really important thing in that film, and the production designer Stephen Jones Evans and I stuck to a very kind of pretty tight colour palette in order, again, to just get the information out that we wanted the audience to have. But it, once the audience has it, and again, as Paola said, it's there, they will interpret it the way they either need to or, or want to. Um, the, another film which I, I worked on, which is, again, a quite a contrast to Romper Stomper but deals with male groups, was Ned Kelly. Um, Interestingly, with Ned Kelly, it was... I mean, I, I immersed myself in research. I mean, you have to. When you're doing a period film like that, you have to completely just swim in the images of the period to get a sense of what people were wearing, why they were wearing it, what it was for, what the function of the garment was, how, and then trying to get my hands on original frock coats, skirts, petticoats, 
just to see the cut and get a feel for the fabric and the, um, what the restrictions of the garment were. Interestingly, men's frock coats were, I mean, most cutting at that time was very remedial. It was very basic. And if you put a frock coat on, your shoulders kind of ended up around your ears because the armholes were cut so high. And, you know, men would, a lot of the guys would put them on and go, but I actually can't move. Like, I can't lift my arms up and I can't... Because everything was cut smaller. I mean, we, the body shapes were just different. But the garment itself was restricted because they, they just didn't have the same amount of um, free movement that we do now. It's like women's garments. They informed the period. Or they informed you in terms of the period... Um, decorum, I guess. You know, you didn't flap your arms around like a bird when you were talking because you couldn't. You know, if you had a thousand petticoats on, you couldn't just run down the street really, really quickly. Or if you were a man, it was much harder to um, have really, really free movement. So knowing the restrictions of the garments of the period, you know, as a costume designer, you then have to come up with solutions. And it's referencing what Paola said about an action man in a suit. I mean, how do you do that? Well, you have a lot of suits because they get trashed. The thing is you want the illusion of them being able to do all those things in those restrictive garments, but you have to make them in a way where they can do what they need to do, which means that there's often elastic gussets and weird things in weird places that you just think, oh, you know, really? Um, and you make a lot of them. You know, I've worked on jobs where action movies where we've made 60 pairs of the same pair of pants because of the sequence and the damage that happens to them. So in three or four takes, you might lose three or four pairs of suit trousers. And then on top of that, you need continuity in your garments. So if it gets a little bit dirty, then you've got to put that pair over there and you come back to that later when you go back to shooting that day. But now you're going to shoot day 75 instead of day 15, so you need day 15 pants to stay there and then you need day 75 pants. So you can't use those ones again, so hang them on that rack and put a number on. because And it's endless, it's endless. So you can end up with thousands of garments that are, in terms of filmmaking, um, so that sequentially you're not running the risk of not having what you need when you've got to shoot it. Interestingly, and just going back to Romper Stomper, because it was my first film, I had no idea how many multiples we would need of garments because, of course, they got, got in fights and they got blood all over them. And I remember sitting in the office one day and the first AD was doing his... Um, getting all his schedule together with what they used to use then, which was a strip board, putting all the strips down with all the scene numbers... And I foolishly said to him, I said, oh, that looks interesting. What are you doing? And he went, making a strip board. I said, oh, what's that for? And he said, that'd be a schedule. I went, right, OK. Hmm. And then he said, uh, what? Do he said, why don't you know that? I said, oh, this is my first film. And the look of horror on his face was fantastic. He went, oh, he said, you do know about doubles, don't you? I went, oh, yeah, of course I know about doubles. And I went back and I said to my supervisor, I said, what, what do you mean, doubles? And she went... Doubles, you know, like so if something gets trashed, then we put that aside and we've got another one. And I went, oh, doubles, okay, doubles, right, we need doubles and everything, we've got to get doubles. So it's baptism of fire, but everything pretty much that's, that you see in a film will have at least, if it's worn by main cast, will have a minimum of half a dozen of that garment. So in terms of coming up with your ideas for costumes, and again, this refers back to Ned Kelly, all those costumes had to be made from scratch and in multiples and dirtied up and dusted up and broken down to various stages of wear and tear because, I mean, that's what the film demanded, but it, so that we simply had enough to service the film. Um, Keith was very interesting in his response to Ned. He said, 
because I think a lot of people expected him to approach it in, in that John Wayne Western hero, leather-wearing, um, macho-y way. And that isn't, wasn't at all the way that he was planning on taking this character. He bought to it himself, and Heath is, was by nature a very gentle person, so he bought to it uh, the role a quiet strength rather than a um, aggressive, macho kind of sting. And that informed his or our costume choices for him. They were softer. It was a softer palette. They were softer fabrics. And interestingly, and, and Heath put a lot of time and thought into who that character was going to be. He argued very strongly for the beard. The producers on Ned Kelly didn't want Heath to have a beard because they went, oh, the girls will think it's really ugly. And look at, look at the world now. It's like full of boys with beards. It's like, really? You know. Um, and Heath, uh, Heath basically said, I will walk away from this project if you don't let me have the beard. And of course they went, oh, well, no, Heath, no film. Okay, you can have the beard. <laughs> and, but interestingly, he and Orlando, it was actually Orlando, Orlando was incredibly competitive with Heath. So if Heath had it, Orlando had to have it. <laughs> and Heath would, uh, uh, you know, I'd, we'd make a pair of pants for Heath, Heath would wear them on set, and Orlando would be in the workroom like this, <coughs> where am I? And I'd say, well, you can't have those ones. He'd say, yes, but I need another pair of pants for that. So, I mean, pants, pants, really. They could have done the whole film in one pair of pants. You get to a wide shot and you see the pants and it could be a pair of tracksuit pants from Kmart. <laughs> you know, and then you get into a close-up. That's what matters. Um, so, but, and so, and uh, interestingly, again, the actor informs the choices. So uh, Heath really wanted to connect with the character, be very faithful and honest in his interpretation of who he thought Ned was. You know, I mean, I think at the end of the day, as a costume designer working predominantly, you know, working with a male um, cast or, or with male, with actors, is that it's a, it's a very generally a pretty comfortable exchange because they aren't, don't seem to be burdened by the same things that women are. And, you know, you can put a lift in a shoe and you get a couple of inches and everybody's happy, you know? And that's so much easier than, does my bum look big in this? Can you make my tits bigger? Can you make me look five kilos lighter? It's like, actually, no, can't do any of those. Um, <laughs> but, it, you know, it's just a, it's a good, honest, robust exchange. Or has been, in my experience, and something that I've really enjoyed. Miss, shut up now. <laughs> Thanks. Fantastic. Thank you, Anna. Uh, I'm sure we're going to have plenty of questions at the end. Um, so next up we have Mark Nichols, who's Senior Lecturer in Cinema Studies at the University of Melbourne. He's author of Scorsese's Men, Melancholia, 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 anyway, I'm going to skip that. <laughs> Lost Objects of Desire, the performances of Jeffrey Irons, and recently published articles on Mad Men, Martin Scorsese, Luciano Visconti, Shakespeare in Film and Film and the Cold War. Mark is a radio and film print journalist and has an extensive list of stage credits as a playwright, producer and director. Mark's talk is titled Sartorial Rights and Masculine Wrongs. He will talk about the idea of masculine rituals and performances of dressing and relate them to notions of melancholia and perversion. Thank you. As you can tell by the cut of my current suit, yes, you're right, Anna, men don't really care what they wear. Um, um, uh, 
Thank you. Uh, sorry, I'm just trying to play, find a place where I can rest this. Um, I've become very interested in my work, particularly on Jeremy Irons, but also on Martin Scorsese's films and, and, and often the films dealing with either Harvey Keitel or Robert De Niro, of a particular ritual of dressing that I've observed in these films, but also in a lot of films that extend well beyond that. And I want to start this... Um, brief presentation with, the disc with a, a clip from the 1984 Volker Schlundorf film uh, which stars Jeremy Irons called Swan in Love which is based on uh, Proust's um, Swan's Way um, and I think this is one of the best examples of many from Jeremy Irons of what I'm calling this kind of ritual of, of, of dressing and what I think that we see. I, I'm almost convinced that this... Uh, ritual of dressing is about as common in cinema as Hitchcock's staircase, which we see everywhere. And you know the clip I'm talking about. Um, this elegant ritual of dress, of, of um, deportment, what's going on there? I, I'm interested in what this, this scene is about. Um, you know, it is, it is uh, about, well, let's just describe it for a minute. It is a very controlled performance. It is... Um, there's a certain anxiety about the situation. If it doesn't matter whether you understand what's going on at the level of dialogue. This, in fact, maybe if you don't, it's a good thing. We, we're seeing this as a bit of business. There's one little moment where he he turns around and he sees that the the um, something on the bookshelf is not quite right, and he just fixes it up. Lovely bits of business. One thing I will say in anticipating what I think these kinds of rituals are about, and uh, you know, I think this relates back to some of the creative practice issues and things that that Anna mentioned is that, you know, these are, this is bits of stage business. I mean, I, I never put on my bio that I'm an actor because I don't consider myself an actor, but I, I act in everything. If ever, I also direct myself, so I make sure I've got all sorts of bits of business to do the whole time with my hands. And, you know, this is part of... And it's about the actor's control as well. But I think it's really interesting the way that Jeremy Irons brings this to this role at this particular point, what's going on there. Bits of business. We love as actors to have stuff to do. Have you ever seen an old cigarette scene in an old movie where the actor doesn't tap it on the thing? Why do we do that? We don't need to do that anymore. But that's a lovely bit of business. So there's a certain, you know, on-set stuff going on here. Oh, you know, dear Volker Schlundorf, I'm feeling a bit stressed here. Just, you know, do a bit of business, Jeremy. You know, mess around with that thing. Play with something. Use your fingers. Don't just stand there like this, you know. Um, so that's one of my tentative conclusions. What's going on in these things? Sure, it's nice business for the actor. It gives us a chance to get to know, get into the character. But I was thinking about this in the context of, of other, in other films and TV shows, and I was thinking of the novel by Nancy Mitford, Love in a Cold Climate. It's been televised a few times in different contexts. And Fanny Logan says, you know, I love going to balls, but the thing I like best is the dressing up bit. And to me, this is a really interesting idea. A lot of the characters I'm interested in here, and these, I think these characters um, fit um, nicely in with the, the kind of idea of the dandy, perhaps, rather than the peacock, um, are about having a moment. It is about the anticipation of desire before desire is about to happen. And we all know what it's like. You spend you know, half an hour getting your new dinner jacket on and you're feeling fantastic, and then you go to the party and it's crap. You know. <laughs> so, you know, the dressing up is the fun bit. And I think what I'm seeing with my guys um, is, is uh, an element of what I will use the word perversion. Freud defines perversion as um, the uh, lingering over the intermediate relations 
between the desire for satisfaction and the actual consummation of satisfaction. So for Freud, foreplay is a perversion. Kissing is a perversion. And what I think we're seeing in these characters is a kind of an elaborate ritual, perhaps of, of delay. Maybe I'll just take about ten more minutes over this dress and anticipate what's going to happen tonight, because I know damn well that desire, by its nature for me, being a melancholic, perverse male, is unsatisfiable. I like that, and I like to prolong that moment. I think there's a very interesting moment here where these characters are trying to create a controlled environment, trying to grasp that idea of desire that they fear, or, you know, more perversely, that they create as, as being significant because they know what's coming next, either by their own actions or by, their own, or by the external actions of others, is not going to measure up that ultimately the idea of desire is what's important, the satisfaction of desire, you know, that old thing about, you know, the woman says to her boyfriend as he's dumping her, oh, you never liked me, you just like the idea of me. And this is a particular form of male desire that I think is, is very common in a number of these films, certainly uh, in, in the films of Jeremy Irons that I've been looking at. And I hope you've seen his film M. Butterfly, which ends in that spectacular way where he's in the middle of a huge... Um, uh, cell block of French prisoners and he's putting on this elaborate kimono dressing up as butterfly in front of all these people only there to, to hurry curry himself you know but the the idea it's this great this is about control and I, I want to finish off with a clip um, from Martin Scorsese's taxi driver where I think we're starting to get at some of the ideas what is really at stake here in addition to this idea of the preservation of the possibilities of desire is inevitably a concern about control. And, and, and so even if it is a frock coat, even if it is something as dandy or delicious as, uh, as, as we've, some of the examples we've seen, what I think is, is happening here is a kind of armature. Um, we know the line from Proofrock, you know, and, and the, the, the love song of J. Alfred Proofrock and the, the three-piece suit. That idea is it you know, holds you in, it contains you, it keeps you together, it makes sure things like emotions don't get out. I think someone talked about the poet um, uh, A. Hausman as having his four-piece suits. He was so buttoned up. <laughs> and this is what's going on. And I want to relate this now to a very different type of... Uh, I won't call him a hero because he's a complete psychopath, Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver. And, and I hope this will cue you not only to those scenes, you know, of, taxi, of him before the mirror, you talking to me, you talking to me, but the, 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 the sense is he's putting stuff on. He's trying to contain something, what I think deep down is a very strong sense of loss and inadequacy and pain. So we're looking at three very different type of men, very different types of costumings. I think one particular and very common sense of loss and pain and, 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 and perversion in a sense. And I'm reminded, and I'll finish with this, with a wonderful quote um, about costuming by the English playwright Alan Bennett. He's parodying uh, Oscar Wilde and he says, and this I think points us to something of the desire that's going on with these type of characters is that um, uh, all women dress like their mothers, that is their tragedy, no man ever does, that is his. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you. Um, I have to say, though, Mark's talk did, is, is starting to convince me that men, in fact, do care a lot about what they wear. <laughs> um, next up, we've got Jake Wilson, who's a freelance writer who is one of the Age film reviewers and also contributes to magazines like Real Time, Australian Book Review and Senses of Cinema. Jake is looking at comedy and how failure or absence of masculinity is demonstrated through exaggerated costume. Jake will look at some famous comedic characters, such as those devised by Charlie Chaplin and Sasha Baron Cohen. Thank you. Uh, thank you. So uh, Mark was talking about um, rituals of dressing. I want to talk a bit about um, male makeovers. So that is, of course, um, Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels in The Immortal Dumb and Dumber. So, and take special note of the, uh, the top hats and the canes which lend themselves to, to endless bits of, of comic business and come back to that. Um, those costumes, by the way, were designed by Mary Zofrez and this was one of her first films as costume designer and she's gone on to do a lot of work with uh, the Coen brothers in particular. So, for example, she designed um, Jeff Bridges' bathrobe in The Big Lebowski. Um, so she's, um, she's a woman who knows a bit about degrading men. Um, <laughs> Uh, you could take that as an example of, in, in Paolo's terms, peacock style gone horribly wrong. Um, but what fascinates me about this sequence is here are these guys, they're dressing up for a big occasion, they want to look as good as they can, but they just happen to be morons. And you don't need to know anything about fashion. You don't, you know, a small child could get the idea that these guys are, are doing it wrong. And that to me suggests that. You know, a particular viewpoint on men and women, what you could call an ideology, is sort of instilled in all of us through culture where we know what's right and what's wrong. Films have kind of... Culture in general has kind of instilled that in us. And um, the writer um, John Berger sort of summed up this pretty well. Um, he was talking about the whole tradition of Western art here when he said, men act and women appear. So men are valued, you know, for what they do, what they achieve, in, and women often are valued for how they look. And when men sort of cross the line from acting to appearing, what you get is often a, um, a comic sort of scenario. So um, now Zoolander. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, so what's um, interesting about this character, Derek Zoolander, is the whole film he appears in is based on the idea that a male model, a man whose job it is to be looked at, is basically ridiculous. Um, so when you start thinking about masculinity in film, um, what becomes obvious after a bit is many of the most sort of striking costumes in, in cinema that are worn by men, costumes that are really designed to get your attention, are, are comic costumes, are burlesque costumes. And this is sort of a double-edged thing because it's not only about um, laughing at guys who look silly, it's also that when we even start thinking about what men are wearing it brings home the fact that, as, as sort of gender theorists are always telling us, um, masculinity is a performance. It's um, something we have to learn. And part of that performance is sort of trying to disguise the fact that it is a performance. And that's sort of inherently a, um, a comic scenario. So let's take another example. Let's look at uh, Jerry Lewis. 
Now, this is, this is Jerry Lewis as um, Julius Kelp in, in The Nutty Professor from 1963. Um, the costumes for this film were designed by Edith Head, who is an absolutely central figure in um, sort of classic Hollywood. She worked on, um, with Hitchcock on Vertigo and Rear Window and other films. She worked with many other great directors. Um, in fact, this, this is not a still from the film. I got this image off the internet, and too late I found out this is, in fact, a wax statue of Jerry Lewis. <laughs> um, so and it doesn't quite line up exactly with what you see in the film, but it, it you know, gives the idea of the character so clearly that um, I thought, well, we'll just go with it. Um, so... Um, this, this is, in a way, the, the opposite of the, uh, the dumb and dumber tuxedos. It, it's not about trying to stand out. It's about almost trying, um, trying to fit in and trying not to be noticed and doing that badly. Um, so you've got the, the, the sort of wonky glasses. You've got this really itchy-looking fabric he's wearing. And um, then, you know, sort of the central part of the costume is, is of course, the bow tie. Now, what's interesting about the, the bow tie, and this, this is a particularly sort of pathetic-looking, crumpled piece of fabric here, um, well, what's interesting is it does sort of function in this ornamental way. And I think it's sort of fair to say that outside the context of, of formal wear, when a guy wears a bow tie in a film, it's pretty much a symbol of castration. <laughs> um, I think, you know, putting it really bluntly, it suggests that, that something has been... Um, lopped off and not um, you know not only has something been lopped off but what's left has been fashioned into this little decorative item <laughs> and just, just to make sure we get the point here because this is burlesque and burlesque is not about being subtle um, we have what looked like scissors in his pocket which not only indicate that he cuts his own hair which you know seems evident but um they also carry this subliminal you know, suggestion that he maybe has castrated himself, either by accident or to sort of get rid of his uncontrollable urges. Um, let's look very quickly at Eddie Murphy's portrayal of the same character in, in the remake. So he's actually a little less unkempt than Jerry Lewis, but on the other hand, he is obese, so he's still getting humiliated in a different way. And those... Um, those lines on his shirt suggest maybe he's making this hopeless attempt to look a bit slimmer than he is. And again, the bow tie. Um, and even very, very similar sort of dots. Now, um, what, I, what I like about this costume, by the way, is it's a little bit more realistic than the, the 1963 version. You can maybe imagine a guy looking like this, and that makes it slightly more uncomfortable. Um, so the Nutty Professor, of course, in both versions, is a sort of variant on the Jekyll and Hyde story. So the nutty professor takes a drug and he, he transforms into his alter ego who turns out to be a lounge lizard named Buddy Love. So let's take a look at Buddy Love. So you go from, um, yeah, this sort of very <coughs> fearful costume to this costume that signifies impotence to this kind of costume about letting it all hang out. Um, but clearly, you know, this is also a burlesque costume. It's, it's another sort of failed peacock costume. And, you know, neither, neither version um, kind of lines up in the film with what we imagine to be Julius's real self. Um, so let's, um, let's now... I want to go back to the, the silent era. 
um, which I think in a way is um, the peak period for um, sort of comic costume in films. And there's probably two reasons for that. One is that um, dress codes in general you know, tended to be more elaborate in the, the sort of early 20th century. They tended to carry more weight. And um, the other is that in that era, um, characters had to be defined purely through visual impact. So clothes, you know, clothes really did kind of make the man. And if you look at any of the great silent comedians, whether it's Buster Keaton, Laurel and Hardy, Harold Lloyd, these are guys who would do whole routines based around hats, you know, hats falling off, swapping hats, you know. I really think that, you know, probably can date the decline of slapstick to when men stop wearing hats. <laughs> and the master of them all, of course, is uh, Charlie Chaplin. And he created his creative, probably the most iconic costume in cinema history. So his comedy is very much about class. It's about the fact that his character, the tramp character, is extremely poor. And these clothes, you can see they're, they're mismatched. There's a button missing. Um, you know, we can assume he, the character found them in a bin somewhere. And the baggy pants in particular suggest, and this is a bit true of um, Jerry Lewis as well, suggest that he's kind of a, a child in a man's world. Um, but even though these are clearly rags, they're not just any rags. They, you know, he, they do constitute very vaguely a, a sort of suit. You know, even though he's down and out, he, he's making some kind of effort to keep up appearances. And, of course, the moustache um, you know, tells you right away that you know, even if he's living on the street, he does somehow find some way to, to shave and, and keep it trimmed. So, like, like these other characters, in one way or another, he is trying to show off. He's trying to you know, put his best foot forward, um, successfully or not. I don't think that in the Tramp's case this is about trying to fit into society because he is a really anti-social character. It's more he's, al he's almost kind of mocking society by setting up his own, his own standards of how he's going to be, how he's going to behave. So the hat, for example, comes in handy when he wants to raise it to a policeman and then the policeman will turn around and he'll give the policeman a kick up the backside. Um, and then there's a cane, which we um, just saw in action in a big way. Um, so the cane is a, uh, an object that has a lot of different connotations. Um, on the one hand, it's to do with um, aristocracy, to do with the idea of leisure. You know, you have the idea that you kind of lean on the cane and even when you're standing up, you're still kind of taking it easy. And that's certainly how Fred Astaire used the cane. And, you know, going back to the Dumb and Dumber clip when um, Jim Carrey starts tap dancing, he's clearly sort of trying to recall Fred Astaire. Um, and then the, the cane is also linked to um, kind of disability, to being, you know, needing some sort of aid... And that sort of links back in turn to the, the idea of castration. And then again, the cane is a, um, a sort of phallic symbol. And certainly in that clip we just saw, um, Charlie was, was using it like that in a pretty brazen way. So he's sort of constantly fiddling with the cane, you know, and it sort of takes on a life of its own. And then he tills off the cane, you know, he says, no, no, you mustn't do that. And has an argument with the cane. Then he's hiding it behind his back, you know, trying to conceal it, um, but, you know, she knows and, and we know what he really has on his mind. So the cane, on the one hand, you know, Charlie in that clip is, a, is kind of a sexually aggressive character. On the other hand, you know, he's kind of harmless. We know he, he's not really going to hurt anybody. He has no real power, sexual or otherwise, and, you know, he does, he does get knocked back. So it's, it's sort of the tension between something that, that's used as a weapon and something that sort of acknowledges that, you know, he, he isn't um, the strong man that he, he might like to imagine himself as. Um, now, I want to end by talking about um, Sasha Baron Cohen, who in a lot of ways is a, a successor to people like Chaplin and Jerry Lewis. 
Uh, okay, so we were talking. We we're talking about the cane as a phallic symbol, which is kind of worn on the outside. So yeah, we have. This is Sasha Baron Cohen in character as Bruno, his his sort of fashionista character, and um, yeah. So again, this is this is kind. It's kind of speaks for itself. But what's interesting? <laughs> what's interesting is that. Again, he's not a threatening character, or at least in this, this image, he's not threatening. He's, he's sort of wearing a, a phallus, but it's not a threatening phallus. It's a baby suit, basically. And um, later in the film, we do see a close-up of an actual penis, but I'm not going to show that. Um, so, um, of course, Bruno is, is gay. He's very flamboyantly gay. And much of this film consists of uh, Sacha Baron Cohen as Bruno going around harassing guys who... Um, who are not actors, they're actual people, they're actual straight guys who are, don't know what was coming and they're completely freaked out by Bruno. So the joke, as often with Sacha Baron Cohen, kind of cuts two ways. It's, um, on the one hand, the joke is on Bruno because he's just completely over-the-top character. On the other hand, the joke is on the, the straight guys who are um, really freaked out and ultimately the joke is on the audience who really just don't know how to position themselves, don't know who they should identify with, um, yeah, don't quite know how to, how to take him. Now, towards the end of the film, um, Bruno decides he wants to be a Hollywood star and the only way he can become a Hollywood star, according to him, is by turning straight. So, like the nutty professor, he, he sort of makes himself over. He transforms into this other figure called Straight Dave. So... <laughs> Um, the straight Dave costume, just to start with, sort of brilliantly combines Bruno's very typical flamboyance with his exaggerated notion of what straight masculinity is like. And it also suggests his, his desire to, to hide himself. So he's literally wearing camouflage, he's got the hat, the, the moustache, and l earlier in that scene he's also wearing sunglasses. Um, but what's, what's even more brilliant about that scene, obviously, is the way it implicates the audience in the stadium. And again, those reactions um, were not staged. They were spontaneous. When that scene was shot, um, it caused a riot, which made the news across the world. Um, so not only does, does Bruno or Straight Dave or Sasha get the crowd to chant along with him, he's got the, in these awful slogans, he's also got them T-shirts so they can wear the slogans. And so they, they're completely implicated, they're completely complicit with what Straight Dave is doing. And when it becomes clear that Bruno is, is playing a role as giving a performance which is you know, clearly not his real self, um, these guys are kind of triggered to realise that maybe they might be playing a role too. And so that rage which you see um, at the end of the clip comes from quite a deep place of, of personal violation. Um, and you notice, incidentally, that so the film really makes a point of showing the reactions of women as well as men. Um, so what, what that scene underlines for me, just to finish, is that... Um, these burlesque characters, however sort of removed they seem from the real world, the way they look and dress, we're going to interpret in terms of what we personally um, think and believe and feel. So however we, we respond, you know, whether we laugh, whether we're outraged, whether we, we're indifferent, it's actually also our understanding of, of masculinity and femininity and our own identities which are on the line. Thank you. So we'll just get our panellists to come and take a seat. Um, 
we've got a couple of roving microphones. So if you'd like to ask a question, because we're recording for podcasts, just give us a split second to run a microphone up to you. Um, I just wanted to ask about maybe femininity and where femininity comes into define masculinity or how they influence each other. Because, um, Paula, with the photos you showed us earlier on, mm. you showed us the dandy, which were very, uh, I'm sure they're complex garments, but very minimal um, when you see them at first and you said they were about restraint. Mm. And then those punk garments um, showed a lot of ornamentation, whether it was, uh, even though it was very sloppy studs and spray paint and so on. Yep. However, we've always associated um, minimalism with menswear mm. and um, lack of variety, as you kind of expressed, Anna, mm. and um, ornamentation, trim, and so on to be a feminine trait. And mm. here I see um, uh, a rebellious uniform, the punk uniform, which sort of took a feminine or reinterpreted um, a feminine element of ornamentation to rebel against society. Mm. And um, just wondering what yeah. you guys, um, what your thoughts on on that is? Well, I guess the dichotomy of masculine restraint and feminine ornamentation comes from the 19th century. Um, and it's something that, you know, we're in the 21st century now, but has still carried on. It was so dominant, I guess. Um, but converse to that, you know, in the 18th century, men were very decorated. Mm. And actually, this is sort of digging up some ideas. Um, because that, that transition from ornamentation I mean, the 18th century, men and women were both ornamented, um, but men actually probably more... Well, they spent more money on embroidery and things like that. Women's dresses were generally woven. Um, and it's the French Revolution that marks um, a real turning point for this idea of power and masculinity being associated with ornamentation, and that really cuts off with the French Revolution. Um, and then transforms to masculinity and power being represented by restraint. Um, some of that comes from modes of English dressing, which I referred to before as being, um, you know, having a big influence on the way that the suit um, is very, comes from English traditions. Um, and I guess the English more traditionally were more restrained. Their dress came from sort of country wear, active wear, um, hunting wear. So uh, who was it before who mentioned that sort of quote of men act and women appear? Mm. So it's these sort of active roles of hunting and because the actual suit comes from the cut of men's hunting gear. Um, but the notion of punk is also, mm. you could argue, that it's a construct. I mean, it yeah. was Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren sitting around going, well, let's do something really cool. Mm. So you've got an amazing fashion designer who's going, okay, let's bastardise this thing, this thing, this thing, which is specifically in the domain of the male, like the leather jacket or the jeans, and you know, you use the sewing thing, the safety pins, what do you do when your hem comes down if you haven't got any gaffer tape? You stick mm. a safety pin in mm. there. So, so, and again, they're outwardly using all these things that previously were inward. You know, you hide your safety pins, but mm. not then, you stick them on the outside. Mm. You know, you tear your dress and you pin it back together. I would say it came from a, f um, the push of it was feminine, and the outcome was that notion of uh, it being about um, look at appearance and mm. the peacock. And but again, the contradiction that lies within that is it would is it was it was saying look at me and you'll be repelled and disgusted. Yeah, exactly. Not look at me mm. and love me because I'm so nice to look at. Mm. It's look at me and up yours. Yeah. Look at me, <laughs> tell you actually up yours, which mm. is great. You know, I mean, in that sense, it was 
you know, it, it achieved a lot. Yeah, I was going to say, Jake, you also mentioned um, the Big Lebowski briefly. You mm. mentioned how he was put in like a, a women's um, dressing gown. And um, you said like the costume designer knows how to degrade um, <laughs> men in a yeah. sense. And I would probably elaborate and say that if anything, it kind of contrasted his masculinity because, and it showed him kind of as the, the leader. And that was an example <laughs> where the feminine defined the masculinity. Um, kind of like those punk mm. uniforms. Well, it's interesting because I would say the big turning point um, in, in male dress comes before the punk era, it comes really in the late 60s with mm. the hippie era mm. and you know how the, the Beatles, for example, allowed themselves mm. to look. And obviously, you know, Jeff Bridges um, in The Big Lebowski is a figure who absolutely embodies that era, mm. um, sort of brought into the present. And yeah, there is a, um, a genuinely heroic quality to him and it is to do with the movement towards androgyny and at the mm. same time but at the same time he is a sort of foolish kind of lost out of time character so kind of both at once I'd say. I think it's interesting though that notion see I think with my guys is that femininity is a kind of a metaphor for desire and that stupid Alan Bennett quote I ended up with when I talked about no man ever dresses like his mother that is his tragedy mm. you know to me and I'm glad Edith Head was mentioned mm. um, and Vertigo because I think Jimmy Stewart in that film, Vertigo, is obsessed by the feminine. There's a wonderful essay by a film theorist called Tanya Modletsky, and she talks about how much he is obsessed with female clothing. And, and the, you know, these guys, I mean, in that example, he wants to be her. He wants to use her as a metaphor for his inadequacy and kind of almost bring her into himself. You know, he's dressing her up. No, don't wear that suit, wear this suit, do your hair this way. You know, femininity. I don't think all these men are necessarily cross-dressers and I don't think they all want to be women, but I think femininity becomes a metaphor for the desire that dare not speak its name. Mm. But why is dressing as a male <coughs> or dressing in any context in relation to a male always mm. associated with femininity? Like I, when you put on your mm. first clips... Um, mm. You know, and talked about these scenes of mm. men dressing. The first scene that I thought of was um, uh, in a single man of George yes. dressing, yeah. oh, and yeah. mm. to me that 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 ritual of dressing. Mm. And I think mm. he says it himself: "This is mm. me putting on George." Mm. Mm. So it's mm. it's it's getting up in the morning, mm. it's getting ready to face the day, and it's mm. putting on a suit. Which, sure, the ritual of dressing, but I mean, men mm. men have, have 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 gone through dressing rituals. Mm in exactly the same way that women have gone through dressing rituals mm. for, the, for the whole of history. Yeah, yeah. I suppose I would say that um, it gets back to um, what Jake was saying about acting and display. And, and we have come to that position to see mm. uh, sartorial fastidiousness mm. as being uh, related to homosexuality, mm. femininity. Mm. Yeah, I mean, but I think, and I particularly the historical context you give, I think, shows that, you know, this notion of construction is everything. And, mm. um, you know, that Jeremy Irons guy, is he gay or isn't he? You know, that mm. sort of, I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I just, mm. you know, I know. But it's, it's, um, and, uh, but... You should loosen it up. That's sort of the narcissism, I mean, it's, <laughs> see, really, it's, it's about the narcissism of that mm. character. But really, narcissism is not about, you know, look at me. It's, it's a desperate psychological attempt to survive. Mm. Um, so we've become, yeah, I mean, I'd, and I think these things, I mean, I think in our lifetimes we've seen different fashions about what the, the nature of this performance and construction is, mm. yeah. 
And we are talking specifically or mostly about some Hollywood cinema. And obviously yeah. if you yeah. look at Bollywood, yeah. if mm. you look at various mm. Asian cinematic traditions mm. and how men look there, there's a mm. whole world of, of male fashion that, that's not necessarily, mm. no, it doesn't fit what we're saying. Mm. Mm. But that Rusty quote about not wanting to wear the Connie jacket, you know, because yeah. it's gay. I mean, my God. <laughs> I know, I just, I, was, I went, oh, I said, what? Like, what are you talking about? And he went, it's mm. okay. It was so his perception that yeah. a skinhead would no more put on a cardigan than, you know, it was just, I said, but you, you, but there was no, that wasn't just, it just wasn't there as a level that he wanted to carry in terms of interpretation. He thought it yeah. made the, the character too complicated in a way. Like, he just wouldn't have thought of that. He wouldn't have referenced yeah. Melbourne 70s subculture, skinhead sharpies, hung out the golden bowl, with red he, he, he just wouldn't have done it. Because yeah. he would have gone, what? Yeah. You know, it's a fucking cardigan. So yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. it was that. He wanted to just strip it back and make mm. it simple. And mm. in a way, and it, it's, it's kind of about that. It's, it's a simple process. Pant, undies. Well, no, men put them on in a weird order. I don't know. Undies, socks, <laughs> pants, shirt, tie, jacket. Was it? Women, it's so much more complicated. My God, are my legs shaved? Aren't they? Can I wear stockings? Do I wear pants? What are they? It's just endless. It's so complicated. And for men, it is a much simpler process but I think there's a need to make it complicated you know there is a desire to want that complication mm. to want more choices I mean you know there's a tie that's interesting there's a jacket how long has that been around for forever <laughs> you know and then you try and do something interesting with it and Celine Dion I rest my case and it all goes wrong you know? <laughs> so somebody needs to to go when if it's going to change there has to be a break that everybody's is happy with mm. because the problem is as soon as you try and reinvent it it goes into the, oh, that's a bit weird and it's never going to last. And it also mm. dates things. Mm. You know, the interesting thing mm. about Romper Stomper is it was made, what, like 30 years ago or something, God, old. Um, <laughs> and it's kind of timeless, though. It is one of those sick films mm. where people will say to me, mm. oh, you know, we used it at a thing as an example of, because they're all in their own little subcultures mm. and the groups, some of those subcultures haven't changed, really. You could pick out a couple, especially the guys in the warehouse, you know, you could pick them out and you could put them now in a squat situation and they're still mm. wearing the 60s cardigans and the hundreds of collective t-shirts and murder because they feel comfortable okay. in that. It's, a, it's their little uniform. Mm. And I think film needs to do that. It needs to subscribe to those ideas of masculinity because that, again, it helps an audience latch onto it. Mm. So yeah, it's hard breaking that mould. But see, I think punk did that to a certain extent. They still mm. use the same silhouettes mostly, mm. but they really did a great job at trashing it. Mm. Jake, you talked about the over-the-top quality of um, some of those costumes as being a burlesque thing. Yeah. Um, but one thing that I, I noticed no one really touched today was the idea of fantasy costume and. Uh, things like superheroes, which is a kind of masculinity that we see so much mm. of these days in cinema. I'm wondering if everyone would sort of like to give their take on, on men's fantasy costumes and what that says about the fantasies we have about masculinity. Well, just to start with, I absolutely think one big thing behind the, the superhero wave, it, it is an excuse for men to dress up in flamboyant outfits mm. and not look gay. Mm. Um, Except they have no genitals. That is true. That is true. No, because you put them in a pair of tights and the first thing you're told is, get rid of it. <laughs> you know, so as a costume designer, and I've mm. been down there, even with a wetsuit, it's like, no, we can't see that. <laughs> so you have to all of a sudden mm. erase that part of their body. <laughs> you go, right, it. okay, well, how would you like me to do that? <laughs> with a knife, pair of scissors, you know. It's, it makes it too blatant. It reveals no, exactly. what is behind the fantasy. I know. So, so it's, it's this 
great contradiction where you, it's a lot of it is about here. It's all that change. You know, mm. yeah. Mm. And really, mm. let's just pretend the rest. That's not why you're a man. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, it's, it's fascinating. Maybe they don't need the genitals because... When I'm in that Batman suit, mm. I am mm. cock. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a walking... No, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. thinking about the sort of translation of the Superman outfit, you know, it, it started off as one thing, mm. but now it's completely something yeah. else. Yeah, yeah, Adam totally. West in the, in the TV totally. series is a very different one. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's great. Yeah. 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 No, it's interesting, whereas like Catwoman, you know, it's all about the sexual, it's all about the organs. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. but for men it's about, because mm, that's a little bit uncomfortable seeing that. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they are very specific, you know, producers will say, mm-mm, it's got to go. Oh, they're fine. Do the actors worried about it? Yeah. The actors, oh, the actors get it. The ones who are worried make jokes and say, oh, put a pair of socks down there. And then you go, right, they're worried. Yeah. <laughs> and some just, so, you know, the ones who are comfortable in their own skin, it's just, mm. skin just go, oh, I don't care, it doesn't worry, it doesn't mm. bother me. Mm. But it's, no, it generally comes from the producers. It's like the beard thing. It's the equivalent of the beard. It's, no, no, because an audience won't really, really won't want to see that. And you also don't want them looking at that all the time. But it's again, it's only mm. in a wide shot, and then everything else is, again, you know, it's about it's about the mid shot and the close up, mm. really. So, mm. so we've probably got time for a couple more questions. Just on, yeah. What about the military, the ultimate in masculinity? Mm. That becomes more and more elaborate, no matter what the ordinary man in the street is dressed like. Mm. Why is this? Do they need to prove the masculinity? Do they need to prove to the whoever they're fighting that they're the ultimate male? I guess, um, I mean, traditionally a lot of the regalia had that, that symbolism. Um, it was about power, it was about, um, you know, association, you know, which country you're fighting for, which team, um, etc. And that ostentatious um, aspect of power. Whereas, you know, combat gear now is actually very functional. Mm. So it's completely changed from being this very upright, um, stiff, um, you know, that's, that's a lot of where the origins of tailoring come from as well, um, into sort of active gear. We actually mm. had a presentation by, uh, you know, the Australian Army and it's, it's, you know, the technology that goes into their clothing mm. now is all about just the different way that, that people fight. They're dressed, they're, it's all camo now, isn't it? So you see them on the street in camo, so they, don't, they've, they've, they no longer have the in-betweeny shirt and pants gear. You know, they've got their fighting mm. and then their street wear is camo now as well. So they mm. used to have mm. shirt, trousers, mm. structured, tailored jacket, but now it's just all, um, you know, cargo pants <laughs> and co-shirt camo. Mm. Which again would be part of helping them blend but also helping them maintain an authority. I think it's about saying to people, we're friendly, because, you know, we all wear cargo pants and Target's full of camo, you know, mm. so it's accessible, but mm. it's also, but we're a little bit dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> so do, careful. Do they yeah. do the dress thing now? The Only dress? for parade. Mm. Only for presentation, but the rest is all just wash but, and wear. Yeah, camo. but that's never <laughs> what they wear. That's just... <laughs> well, you know, it is, it's all about just <laughs> making life a bit easier. Who owns an iron anymore? Yeah. God's <laughs> <laughs> So just, it's, yeah. So I think it's um, a lot of that. I mean, those, interestingly, the uniforms in Ned Kelly, they were a bit of a nightmare. But um, that was um, just the, I, 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 I can't imagine how torturous it would have been to maintain all that stuff. 
you know, because you got boots that weren't even left and right foot. You got yeah, two boots the same, and you just had to wear them until the right foot and the left foot figured out, you know. Yeah. You just, so that would generally meant that they had to get really wet, and they were just putrid, and they smelt, and they would have worn them all the time. It would have been disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> the other area of society where that sort of convention of ceremonial male attire continues is religion. Mm, is, true. Yeah. Um, you know, the priesthood. And so those are really two powerful male archetypes, kind mm. of soldier and priest, which are both sort of set aside, mm. set above, in a way, um, sort of everyday life. Mm. Mm. I think we've got time for one more question. Oh, I've got one here. Um, I was just wondering if you feel there's a connection between society's expectation of show of emotion, i.e. women are allowed to show much more than men, um, and th the way they actually dress. Is, is there some kind of um, restraint for men's clothing as it, it, in relation to how much emotion they're allowed to show generally? Yes. Hold <laughs> <laughs> it. <laughs> <laughs> I care to elaborate on that? I'm not sure. I was um, waiting. <laughs> no, I think absolutely yes. And it, you can see it in films of all kinds that, you know, the, the tough guy, the sort of guy who doesn't talk, doesn't very much, doesn't cry, doesn't show his emotions facially, verbally, is also going to not show his emotions in dress. So I think mm. those two things kind of absolutely do go together, yes. I think that, that clip I showed with Jeremy, you know, it's not the peacock thing, it's the buttoning up. Mm. It's all about buttoning up, not, mm. not letting loose. Mm. Um, he's, you know, the context of that scene is that he's trying to deal with the fact that he's actually fallen madly in love and obsessed by a woman who's not even his type, he says. <laughs> so what does he do? You know, I mean, the only actually what he does in the end is he marries her and that solves all his problems. <laughs> but in the meantime, he's buttoning up. He's not put on the, the peacocky thing, he's putting on a very... Mm. I, I think that I can mm. read that costume mm. in that way. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. One of the great things about costume and film is it can also show involuntary emotions, which I think is what you're talking about. It, can, it doesn't just show what the character wants to project, it can mm. also show what they want to hide. Yeah, what they indeed. Want to conceal. Yeah, mm. yes. Yeah. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme Channel and the Acme website.